chain of events. Cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for and even prevented. I'm John Chigi and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Columbia, the Space Shuttle. On Thursday, the 16th of January, 2003, the Columbia Space Shuttle took off on a mission STS-107. It was the 113th shuttle flight since they began in 1981. Columbia was the oldest space shuttle in the fleet, and this was its 28th launch. There were seven astronauts on board. At 10.39am local time, Columbia lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center with no issues to report at the time, and it passed into low Earth orbit as planned. At 10.47am, the main engine shut down with a launch that was described as textbook. The following day, engineers on the ground were poring over the telemetry and video recordings of the takeoff, as was standard procedure. They noted that on one camera view, it was observed that what appeared to be chunks of insulation visibly separating from the main fuel tank and striking the left orbiter wing at exactly 81.7 seconds after launch. There were three cameras trained on the shuttle at that point in the launch. One was out of focus. Another was at an oblique angle, obscuring the impact point from view. The only camera remaining was in position 42 kilometres or 26 miles away. At the time, the shuttle was travelling at Mark 2.46, which is 1,650 miles per hour or 2,655 kilometres per hour. The Space Shuttle Orbiter, like most spacecraft designed to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere using the atmosphere to slow its descent, have a heat shield installed designed to protect the skin and frame of the craft from the exchange of kinetic energy into thermal energy, otherwise known as heat, caused by friction with the atmosphere at high velocity. The ground staff assessed that the foam debris impact should be classified as a maintenance item to be rectified once the shuttle had returned to Earth the following week. The astronauts conducted their experiments as planned over the next 16 days in orbit, and on the 1st of February 2003, at 8.10am Eastern Standard Time, the all-clear was given to Columbia to commence their deorbit burn sequence and commence re-entry. At 8.15am, the shuttle moved gradually to its 40-degree attack angle for re-entry. By 8.44am, the shuttle was midway through its re-entry, with temperatures at the heat shield layer of approximately 1,400 degrees Celsius, or 2,550 degrees Fahrenheit. At 8.54am, four temperature sensors on the shuttle's left side stopped providing temperature readings in quick succession. At approximately 8.55am, amateur shuttle enthusiasts were out in the early morning to capture the Columbia shuttle's re-entry on their home video camera. During the first few moments of filming, they could clearly see bright chunks of material separating from the shuttle as it was travelling through the air at high speed. At 8.59am, Mission Control, who had no visual tracking on the shuttle, were relying on telemetry, noting that multiple different sensors in the orbiter had now begun to fail in very quick succession. Both left-hand side landing gear tyre pressures went off-scale low, indicating they no longer had any pressure in them or that the sensors or cabling had been damaged. At 8.59 and 32 seconds, the shuttle mission commander Rick Husband's radio transmission was cut off mid-sentence. Five seconds later, hydraulic control pressure was lost. 
and the shuttle was no longer able to be controlled, with the master alarm sounding on board. At 9 o'clock and 18 seconds, eyewitnesses in Texas and Louisiana witnessed the shuttle tear itself into multiple pieces, each with an ion trail behind it, as it disintegrated during re-entry. Although the exact time the crew lost consciousness cannot be known for certain, the cabin was completely depressurized 33 seconds later. Their spacesuits could not protect them as the crew module began to break apart at 9 o'clock and 57 seconds, disappearing completely from view 13 seconds after that. Many years later, a deeper investigation found that at least one of the crew hadn't fastened their helmet and gloves for re-entry and would have died from asphyxiation shortly after full depressurization had occurred. The other astronauts would have suffered blunt force trauma caused by flying debris in the cabin area. At no stage was the orbiter low enough in the atmosphere to safely bail out and use their personal parachutes to escape. With no means of monitoring the shuttle status, Mission Control took a call from a fellow NASA employee to report to them at 9.12am that news reports had indicated that the shuttle had broken up on re-entry. Despite over 8,000 individual pieces of debris falling across a huge area across the United States, and although there were several close calls, no injuries were reported to bystanders from falling debris. At 1pm that afternoon, NASA formally announced the loss of Columbia. Its crew of seven, Commander Rick Husband, Pilot Willie McCool, Payload Commander Michael Anderson, Mission Specialist David Brown, Payload Specialist Ilan Ramon, Mission Specialists Kalpana Chalwa and Laurel Clark did not survive. Within three hours, Admiral Harold Gaiman Jr. had been appointed to lead the accident investigation. On the 5th of February 2003, following speculation that the incident was caused by the foam strike during the launch, NASA Program Manager Ron Ditmore stated on television, and I quote, It is just does not make sense to us that a piece of debris would be the root cause for the loss of Columbia, end quote. A large team on the ground scoured all across the debris path, tagging and noting the locations, weights of each piece of debris found from the shuttle, and using this, back calculated the most likely location to find specific components to assist in the investigation. As the search began, of primary interest was the shuttle flight data recorder. Unlike commercial aircraft flight data recorders, the shuttle flight data recorder wasn't designed with heavy protection in the case of a crash, but rather for removal at the end of each flight to study more detailed telemetry than the transmitted telemetry during takeoff and landing. Interestingly, the other shuttles had more basic flight data recorders that only recorded a small subset of telemetry for later analysis. However, Columbia was the only shuttle to have an extremely large number of telemetry inputs it recorded, as it was the oldest shuttle in the fleet. That specific flight data recorder was the original from the first flights of the orbiter and was originally used heavily for fine-tuning the original design of the shuttles that followed Columbia. Using the increasingly accurate model of where the flight data recorder would most likely be located, the search team researched a previously searched area with renewed focus and, on the 19th of March 2003, it was finally located near Hemphill in Texas. A volunteer firefighter from Montana, Chauncey Birdtail, who had been researching the area for nearly three weeks and was stunned to find in the middle of a field that the flight data recorder was mostly intact. Without any additional physical protection, somehow it had survived. Initial thoughts that the damage had allowed superheated ionised gas to enter the left wing wheel well, leading to the multiple transmitter failures, were debunked by the data contained in the flight data recorder. 
Instead, the detailed readings indicated that these were secondary failures and the, of the monitoring telemetry, and in fact, the entry point was somewhere along the front of the left wing instead. More than that, the detailed telemetry went back to a time prior to re-entry and indicated that there was something wrong prior to the re-entry sequence. In parallel, NASA had spent two months digitally enhancing a loop of 17 frames of video to reduce blur and grain from the video footage. Using the enhanced video, they measured the velocity of impact of the foam to be approximately 545 miles per hour, or 870 kilometers per hour, relative to the orbiter's speed, and weighed about 1.7 pounds, which was 0.77 kilograms, and was about the same physical size as a small briefcase. The orbiter used reinforced carbon-carbon panels, or RCC panels for short, and this carbon fibre compound could withstand temperatures from minus 160 degrees Celsius to 1,650 degrees Celsius, or minus 256 degrees Fahrenheit to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Starting on May the 30th, 2003, the Southwest Research Institute began foam impact testing in an attempt to replicate the foam debris impact Columbia sustained during its launch. They used a modified compressed air pipe launching mechanism, known as a chicken gun, to simulate the impact of foam with standard RCC panels from the shuttle orbiter. The chicken gun is so-called because it's normally used to simulate bird strikes on commercial aircraft. The RCC panels are custom-made, as are many parts, for the shuttle and cost about $800,000 per panel. And for this reason, the investigation team needed to ensure their tests were well-planned and set up before the real materials were provided to restrict the number of panels that they would need for testing. The initial analysis of data from the flight data recorder suggested the damage most likely occurred on the leading-edge panels between panel 3 and panel 9 on the left-hand side. NASA reluctantly provided some panels for the investigation team, first starting with panel 6 as the midway point between, as a starting point. The initial testing showed relatively minor damage to the panel, and certainly not of the scale necessary to cause a heat shield breach. As further evaluation of the progression of telemetry failures during Columbia's re-entry continued, the flight data recorder allowed investigators to build a thermal pathway map as the heat progressed through the wing, which pinpointed then the most probable damaged panel as panel 8. The test was now reconfigured this time to test using panel 8, and on July the 7th, 2003, ensuring the impact angle exactly matched that from the video footage, the test was rerun, and the result could not have been more different than from that of panel 6. The foam punched a hole through panel 8, and the hole was 16 by 16.7 inches, or 41 by 42 centimetres in size. The damage that led to the destruction of the orbiter on re-entry was undeniably caused by the foam impact on panel 8 during the launch. So what went wrong? On August 26, 2003, the report was released, which was highly critical of the human factors and decisions made following the foam impact discovery, however ultimately recommended the foam issues be addressed before another shuttle should be allowed to fly. The impact was noted the day following the launch, and the investigators uncovered some uncomfortable information during the investigation. Several concerned engineers had requested during the mission that satellites in orbit be used to take photographs of the orbiter's wing to confirm if there was any visible damage to the panel. NASA management suppressed these requests to the Department of Defense for imaging and actively downplayed the likelihood of foam impact damage being of any consequence. The perception that foam impact 
couldn't cause a problem was more due to historic desensitization of the risks of foam impacts. The original launch of Columbia in 1981 required 300 of the 30,000 thermal tiles to be replaced due to damage caused by debris. And in a sample of 79 shuttle launches, where there are detailed photographic records of the thermal tiles taken, 65 of those launches showed evidence of foam shedding. Following the investigation, it was determined that on both STS-52 and STS-62, there had been bipod foam losses that had gone undetected during the launch. In 1988, upon the return of STS-27R, impact damage from some of the insulating material on the right-hand side Solid rocket booster nose cap detaching 85 seconds into launch caused significant damage to the thermal tiles on the right wing of the orbiter. Commander Robert Gibson commented after landing inspection that the orbiter, and I quote, looked like it had been blasted by a shotgun, end quote, with final inspection finding over 700 panels had been damaged with one entire tile missing. The missing tile was located over a steel mounting plate for the L-band communication antenna, with re-entry heat destroying the antenna. However, as luck would have it, there was no thermal path into the wing through that missing tile. During the mission, the shuttle commander was so frustrated with mission control's analysis, concluding that there was no risk to re-entry as a result of the suspected tile damage, Gibson later said in an interview that had they burned up on re-entry, and I quote, I'd have at least 60 seconds to tell Mission Control just what I thought of their analysis. End quote. Back to Columbia. In addition, Congress had announced that if there were any further delays to future shuttle missions to complete the International Space Station, funding would be cut. This contributed to NASA management's decision not to highlight any potential issues with the shuttle and photographs of the damaged wing could have led for, to further delays to future shuttle flights. As it happened, the destruction of Columbia had the outcome that they were trying to avoid, regardless. Eight days into the flight, the NASA mission manager sent an email to the crew informing them of the foam impact, and I quote, not because they thought it was worthy of the crew's attention, but because the crew might be asked about it in an upcoming media review, end quote. With the email stating that the foam hit presented, and I quote, absolutely no concern for entry, end quote. The analysis of what could have been done had there been a positive confirmation that the hole in the RCC panel would lead to the destruction of Columbia, the only viable option would have been to launch another space shuttle, either with replacement parts in an attempt to repair the panel in orbit, or, more likely, to rescue the crew by evacuating them to a second shuttle. As fate would have had it, the shuttle Atlantis was in the final stages of preparation for its own launch in coming weeks, and it was estimated that a three-week, around-the-clock preparation schedule for Atlantis to launch a rescue mission would have been possible, and within Columbia's astronauts' remaining oxygen supply. Either way, the panels hadn't been designed to be replaced in orbit, nor had two shuttles ever been in orbit and docked to each other ever before. Any such rescue mission would also have been extremely dangerous. The foam that caused the impact came from the left bipod ramp, which is a connection point for the primary fuel tank to the orbiter. Part of the investigation looked at other contributing factors, such as the removal of the white paint following the second shuttle mission, that led to a slight reduction in the integrity of the foam insulation in the name of saving 600 pounds of launch weight, leading to the now familiar rusty orange natural colour of the insulation in all following flights. Pages 51 to 53 of the CIAB Report Volume 1 describe a series of concerns that led to the detachment of the foam section from the bipod ramp, including the manual application process and layering of compounds to make the foam was not consistent. 
regular defects were found along seam lines where multiple layers were over-applied, noting that in 10% of the missions where the left bipod ramp was visible following external tank separation, they showed foam loss on the left bipod ramp. Regarding the above, about 30% of missions were either at night or the angle of the external tank met photography of the foam bipod ramp was not possible and examination upon return to surface would be impossible due to damage during the return path to the surface. The original concern was the design and development of the bipod ramps and shifting from a fully flat to a 20 degree ramp profile was not tested well enough. From the report, I quote, the qualification testing did not truly reflect the combination of factors the bipod would experience during flight, end quote. The report also points out that at the time, computational fluid dynamics modelling software was well enough advanced to perform a non-real-world simulation test that would have highlighted the design weaknesses of the bipod ramp as a combined structure when fitted to the orbiter. Ultimately, though, the design was not reviewed, nor remodelled or revisited. Following the report's publication and after some deliberation, NASA agreed to and overhauled its management structure in line with the report's recommendations. It made the raising of safety concerns easier for all employees, regardless of level in the organisation. Additional high-resolution cameras with better tracking were installed at launch sites for the shuttle, and NASA mandated the imaging of orbiters when they were in orbit following every launch. The primary tank insulation on the orbiter side of the tank was strengthened and redesigned to ensure that pieces could not as easily tear apart during launch conditions. On the 26th of July 2005, Discovery's mission STS-114 launched, returning the Space Shuttle program to service with new procedures that utilised the shuttle's cargo arm to check the underside of the orbiter for any signs of damage prior to re-entry. Some of the measures taken were strengthened following STS-114 and due to more foam loss than expected, the next shuttle flight was further delayed 12 more months and while more retrofitting to the Discovery was applied. It launched once again, however, on the 4th of July 2006. As a result of the incident with Columbia, NASA planned so-called contingency missions, assigning prepared shuttles as rescue flights should they be needed if a heat shield breach was ever detected again and rescue became necessary. Ultimately, though, the Space Shuttle program ended six years later with STS-135 in 2011. And no contingency mission was ever needed to be flown, and no other lives or orbiters were lost in the remainder of the shuttle program. So what have we learned from all of this? There are three areas I'd like to focus on regarding Columbia. Retro PHA, normalization of deviation, and floor design. Firstly, retro PHA, and technically this is a retro process hazards analysis, though in this specific instance, it could be thought of more as a retro design review, one that's held periodically to ensure that improvements in engineering design, modeling, or lessons learned are applied to existing designs. Retro PHAs are a concept whereby you revisit your engineering design periodically, every agreed period, let's say every five years, and go back through the design review process or risk analysis process, or both, to ensure that nothing has been missed. Some engineers have the attitude that if it isn't broken, don't fix it. However, had a design review been done with a full shuttle fluid dynamic simulation model performed, the turbulence surrounding the bipod ramp would likely have been flagged as a potential issue. In engineering, we should always make time to seriously consider our designs periodically. If it can't stand up to current scrutiny in the current environment, then we should always consider improvements. Having said that, Due to the following item, I'm not convinced the consequences of it being discovered during a re-review process that the tank would have even been considered serious enough to warrant a redesign. 
And that's because of the second point, normalization of deviation. Sometimes people refer to it as normalization of deviance. The term has become more popular in safety culture in the past few decades, and the concept is centered around the human acceptance of repetitive activities without any incident leading to an expectation that all future seemingly identical activities will have an equal outcome equally without incident. Essentially, we train ourselves through repetition that the activity we're performing has never failed before, and hence, why would it fail now? Normalizing the activity, irrespective of how hazardous that activity might be. In the case of Colombia, there had been foam loss and foam impacts leading to damage to thermal tiles on the vast majority of launches in the entire history of the space shuttle program. Despite all of this tile carnage, until Colombia, there had been no incidents. However, you could argue the case of STS-27R in 1988. There was a clear near miss that despite all of the evidence upon landing, NASA management and even many of their experienced engineers accepted that tile damage was inevitable, unavoidable, and without significant consequence. All of this, despite the fact that the breach of a single tile upon re-entry, if in the wrong place, could destroy an orbiter on re-entry. And this finally happened with Columbia. Ultimately, the third point comes back to the flawed design. For all of its wonder, the space shuttle orbiter design was fundamentally flawed in several key respects. Some of this we covered in episode 8 about Challenger. In the case of the thermal insulation, however, all spacecraft that re-enter the atmosphere in an uncontrolled or semi-controlled manner require some kind of thermal protection system. The entire underbody of the shuttle was covered in thermal tiles, not just the leading edge of the wings. However, the problem was how the shuttle was attached to the primary fuel tank and its solid rocket boosters. Because they're positioned parallel to the orbiter and the orbiter is mounted well below their highest point, any debris falling from above is very, very likely to impact the shuttle. Whilst the foam impacting metal components of the shuttle is unlikely to cause damage even at speed, insulating tiles demonstrated the damage from foam was seen with alarming regularity. The Soyuz descent module, for example, is mounted on top of the rocket, above it. Hence, the thermal tiles are not exposed to anything falling on them from above during launch to potentially damage them. And the same is true for previous NASA spacecraft like Gemini and Apollo, where the thermal protection tiles are covered by it sitting above the rocket, sheltered from any potential debris damage. That was not the case with the shuttle design. The conclusions we draw from Columbia, beyond the design choices made in the shuttle itself and beyond design reassessments, they centre around our own human factors, ones that we all present from time to time. The choices made by people on the ground regarding the risks presented by the tile damage speak very clearly to normalization of near misses and our human ability to accept incorrect or dangerous behaviors and risks if they are repetitive. Being more able organizationally to challenge accepted norms is certainly beneficial and NASA adopted or appeared to adopt this stance following Columbia, which is good to see. Many other organizations should make note of that. Ultimately, though, it comes down to the individual. As an engineer, if you see a high-risk activity, a flaw in a design that others are overlooking or failing to acknowledge, make your voice heard and don't let go of it until they've acknowledged your concerns. If your concerns aren't founded when you walk through a complete thorough design review, that's okay. It's better to speak your mind and speak your concerns than to keep them to yourself. 
When STS-27R landed, there should have been an investigation like that of Columbia about the thermal tiles and their damage, but there wasn't. It was a genuine near miss that showed just how a tile failure could have led to a disaster. After 27 launches, there was a significant near miss that was ignored. 87 launches later, seven people died from the same failure mechanism that had been normalised to a low-risk maintenance concern. Challenge yourself. Challenge your perceptions of risk. Just because it hasn't failed 99 times doesn't mean that it won't fail the 100th time. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can, like some of our backers, Carsten Hansen and John Whitlow. They and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon, and you can find it at patreon.com slash johnchidgey or one word. Patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw, detailed show notes, as well as ad-free, higher-quality releases of every episode. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards. And beyond that, it's all really, really appreciated. Beyond Patreon, there's also a PayPal for one-off contributions at paypal.me slash jachidgy or one word. But if you're not in a position to support the show financially, that's completely fine. There's other ways you can still help. Leave a rating or a review on iTunes. Favorite the episode in your podcast player app of choice or share the episode or the show with your friends or via social. All these things help others discover the show and can make a huge difference as well. Causality is part of the Engineer Network and you can find it at engineer.network and you can follow me on Mastodon at chidgy at engineer.space or the network on Twitter at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgy. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.